13th of March 1996. Three people, a mother and two of her children, are found bludgeoned to death in their home at Albion Park, New South Wales. With the father having a solid alibi, the surviving son would become the main suspect. This is the case of the De Grouchy family massacre. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. I hope you're all well. This week is a horrific case of a family massacre that happened 23 years ago. And being 23 years ago, well, the perpetrator is now eligible for parole and in fact has been granted parole with his release this month. Now, this is an interesting case in that it was based on circumstantial evidence and it was very strong circumstantial evidence. There was no motive, and as the perp has never confessed and still pleads his innocence, there's a lot to go through. Still, he was convicted, and all of his appeals were dismissed. So let's get into it. The DeGrouchy family lived at 28 Shearwater Boulevard in Albion Park, New South Wales, and that's about a two-hour drive south of Sydney. Maybe not two hours, but getting close. The family consisted of Wayne DeGrouchy, he's the father, Miss, Mrs. Jennifer DeGrouchy, 42, the mother, Matthew, 18, Adrian, 15, and Sarah, 13, were their children. They didn't seem out of the ordinary, they were just a suburban family living the suburban life. Now, look, I normally have a bit more background about the victims, but I was unable to get a lot in the time I had. And this is a long episode, so we'll get straight into it. Also, normally I call the perp by their last name, but as the whole family's involved, I will generally call them by their first names to avoid confusion. So now we come to the afternoon of the 12th of March, 1996. Wayne, the father, he often stayed at his parents' place in Moorbank, which is west of Sydney, and it's about an hour and a half from the family home. Wayne was with his parents at Moorbank on the night of the 12th, having attended a company golf day at Pennant Hills Golf Club. On the afternoon of the 12th, Matthew DeGrouchy was at home with his mother, brother and sister, and he was preparing to go and stay the night with his girlfriend, Alyssa Brindley, at her place. Matthew would take a telephone call from Dorothy Hallowell, his maternal grandmother, between 7pm and 7.30pm. He passed that call on to his mother. He took another call from Alyssa Brindley, that's his girlfriend, at about 8pm. And Uncle Raymond Hallowell received a telephone call from Matthew's mother Jennifer at about 7.45pm and he spoke to her for about 10 to 15 minutes. 
Now, Alyssa tried calling the De Grouchy home repeatedly, wondering where Matthew was at around 10.30pm, but the phone was engaged. Matthew would arrive at Alyssa's house at around 11pm to 11.30pm, according to her, and on arrival, he told her he was late because his mother had received about five prank calls up till around 9.40pm and she had asked him to stay. He had a bag packed with a change of clothes. Now Alyssa said that he was wearing a white t-shirt and black tracksuit pants when he arrived. She saw no blood on him or on his clothes. He had no apparent injuries to his face or body and he did not seem depressed, anxious or upset. Now, Matthew told her he'd answered at least one of the calls and all he could hear was the other end being hung up and beep, beep, beep. This was corroborated by Alyssa's mother, Gail Brindley. The next morning at 8am, Matthew left Alyssa's place to return to his home. On his arrival, he stated that he returned to his home that morning. He went into the kitchen dining area, but nowhere else. He put down his overnight bag and he did not see anybody around about. He went back to his mother's car and drove to a supermarket to purchase some cigarettes. On his return, he discovered the body of his mother. He placed a towel over her and ran outside for help. He did not go into Sarah's room, Adrian's room, the bathroom, the laundry or the main bedroom ensuite at any stage that morning nor did he open any cupboards, doors or drawers or use the bathrooms. Matthew went to the house of Stephen Bailey who lived opposite the De Grouchy home. It was now about 8.30am. He was seen to be crying and was heard to twice say there is something wrong with mum and Sarah. Bailey did not notice any blood or injury upon him. He went over to the De Grouchy home where he found Mrs. De Grouchy dead in her bed. He then alerted the emergency services. He returned to the house where he found the body of Sarah. This occurred at about 9.03am. Another neighbour, Lawrence Hoogvliet, and two of the first police, police to arrive at the scene, detectives Williams and Pepper, similarly noticed Matthew to be very distressed describing him as lying down and sobbing outside Mr. Bailey's house. Two ambulance officers thought him to be sufficiently upset for them to take him to Shell Harbour Hospital. Later that day, after he'd returned from the hospital, Alyssa asked Matthew about the prank phone calls, and he said, Someone had rung up and said three people in your family would be deceased. Now, he didn't mention this to police earlier in the day. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's get back to the initial crime scene. When police investigated the scene, they found that Matthew's mother, brother and sister all to be dead. Each was suffering from massive head wounds and in the case of Adrian, extensive injuries to his body. Mrs. DeGrouchy and Sarah were in their beds while Adrian was lying on his back in the floor in the garage. He smelt strongly of petrol. His arms were blistered and his shirt and shorts were soaked in petrol. His head and neck were covered with a doona, which had some cuts in it. A cushion found in Sarah's bedroom 
which appears to have been placed over her head, was also found to have several cuts. Post-mortem examination of the deceased revealed, in the case of Jennifer de Grouchy, a very severe depressed fracture between the eyes, severe lacerations in conjunction with skull fracturing in the left forehead region, fractures of the cheekbones and extensive underlying brain trauma, along with a number of abrasions and bruises. And Dr. Carla was of the opinion that the injuries were capable of having been caused by a wheel brace or sledgehammer while the deceased was asleep. In the case of Adrian de Grouchy, approximately 21 injuries to the head and neck were found. He had a grossly fractured face and base of the skull, along with numerous lacerations to the back of the head, right forehead and mouth, as well as fractures to the cheekbones and jawbone. There were six injuries to the trunk, including some tram track or linear bruises to the chest. These bruises were replicated by very obvious bloodied tram track patterns on his shirt. Dr. Carla was of the opinion that the head injuries were similar to those suffered by his mother and sister and could have been caused by a similar weapon to that used to inflict the chest injuries, which he opined was to have been a heavy straight object approximately one centimetre in width and at least 15 centimetres in length, such as a jack handle or wheel brace. He tended to favour the latter, because of the presence of a coin-shaped bruise to the chest of this deceased, that's uh, Adrian, a sledgehammer, he said, may have caused the head injuries. The peeling skin seen on the arms of his victim were consistent with petrol having been poured on him before wanting to set him alight. In the case of Sarah de Grouchy, 10 injuries were found to her head and neck, mainly confined to the right side. There was a marked skull fracturing of the forehead and of the right side and base of the skull, as well as extensive lacerations, abrasions and bruising. On the right arm, there were three bruises, including one tram track bruise, consistent with it having been struck with a tire lever. She had some defence type injuries to her right arm. It was Dr. Carla's opinion that the time of death of each of the deceased was similar and that it occurred between 8pm on the 12th of March and 1am on the morning of the 13th of March. He conceded that the time of death could have been as late as 3am. So, what a horrific find. In fact, one of the policemen that attended the scene was so distressed, he never went back to work. So police, as they do, start from the closest to the family outwards And they found that Wayne McGrouchy, the father, had a pretty solid alibi being at his parents' house on the night of the 12th into the morning of the 13th. This left Matthew, who'd been at home up until around 11pm or so. Also, there were items of value in the house, but they weren't missing. So, not a robbery. So what's going on? Let's get a bit further into this one. When Matthew was interviewed electronically by Detective Sergeant Sharkey on the 17th of March, he detailed his movements during the evening of the 12th of March and the morning of the 13th of March, 1996. He said, 
that when he returned to his home that morning, he went into the kitchen dining area, but nowhere else. He put down his overnight bag. He did not see anybody around. He went back to his mother's car and drove to a supermarket to purchase some cigarettes. It was upon his return that he discovered the body of his mother. He placed a towel over her and ran outside for help. He did not go into Sarah's room, Adrian's room, the bathroom, the laundry or the main bedroom en suite at any stage that morning. Nor did he open any cupboards, doors or drawers or use the bathrooms. He stated that he'd left to go to Alyssa Brindley's house the preceding night a bit before 10pm. He said there'd been about five prank calls up to 9.40pm. He added that when the phone had been picked up, all he could hear were the beeps, indicating that the caller had hung up. He also said that he packed a change of clothes in a bag, which he took to Alyssa's home and left in the family room upon his return. The clothes were not used. Now, this interview followed the taking by Detective Senior Constable Dickinson of a preliminary statement from Matthew on the afternoon of the 13th of March as to his movements that day and the preceding day. Now, in neither the statement nor the ERISP, now that means electronically recorded interview of a suspected person, did Matthew make mention of any person informing his mother that there were to be some deaths in the family. In the statement, he said that he'd been wearing a pair of blue quicksilver shorts and a white track shirt and runners when he went to Alyssa's home. The next morning, he said that he'd changed into a tracksuit. It was to give a different version at his trial. So when you start changing your story a little bit or leaving out such things as my mother got death threats that night... It sounds a little bit sus. Several weeks after the killings, some children playing in the vicinity of a dam at the old Boral Brickworks at Winona found a red bag containing a sheet and a towel wrapped around a small sledgehammer. One of the boys removed the hammer and placed it in the grass. His mate put the bag back in the water. Sometime later, the first boy returned to the scene with a Mr. Sean Chamberlain who moved the hammer behind a tree. The matter was then reported to police. When police attended the dam, they recovered a red and white Lesport bag, a black coloured backpack and a number of loose items. Those items comprised a towel, a Sega, uh, Sega game cases and control pads, a black lady's purse containing credit cards, papers and a license in the name of Mrs. DeGrouchy, a light-covered sock, a pair of scissors, a pair of blue track pants and a calculator with the name A. DeGrouchy inscribed on the back. A hanky was also found lying in the mud of the dam. Another handkerchief was found alongside a game case near the west bank of the dam after it was drained. The hammer was found under a tree as it had been reported. The sports bag was found to contain two t-shirts, one maroon coloured, one blue coloured, a video tape recorder, a kitchen knife, a key ring, a number of compact discs and cases, another towel, a pair of binoculars, a bottle of Sambuca, some pieces of carpet and a plastic Ziploc bag.
The black backpack contained a Sega Master System 2, two calculators, some Sega game cases, a video cassette, a Game Boy and game cartridges, a light-coloured sock, a Batman bag, and a black sports Velcro wallet. Pieces of carpet found in the dam bore similar black marks to those seen on the sheet. The plastic Ziploc bag that was found inside the red and white sports bag was examined and seen to contain some Band-Aid wrappings and a torn-up piece of paper in Matthew's handwriting. When reconstructed, it appeared to have been a sheet of Noah on the Beach brand notepaper on which there was written, Open Gate, Throw Bottle Down the Back, Throw Things Down Wall in Roof, Tracksuit Pants, 1, Knife, 1, T-Shirts, 2, Shoes, 2, Hanky, Pole, Towel, Open Blinds to See Through, Sarah, Mum, Adrian, Headbutt Mirror, and that was crossed out, and it's got Bench, Have Shower, Throw Hi-Fi Down Back, Hit Arm with Pole, Hit Leg with Pole, Cut Somewhere with Knife. Written on the rear of this sheet of paper were a series of numbers. To me, that note looks like not so much a shopping list, but a, a list of things to do, uh, which includes his mum, sister, brother's names. He's also wanting to hit his arm with a pole, hit his head with a pole, headbutt a bench, cut somewhere with a knife, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, we will get back to the note. Also, the pieces of carpet found in the sports bag at the dam were compared with the main bedroom carpet and with a tuft found in the family car Matthew had been driving. A Mr. Palethorpe, an expert in fibre science, concluded that it was highly probable that the carpet found in the dam, similarly to the tuft found in the Toyota, came from the carpet in the main bedroom. The hammer tested for blood, but would seem that the DNA testing and blood grouping were unsuccessful. No fingerprints were recovered from items in the dam, probably because they'd been immersed in water for so long. After discovery of the note, police made a further examination of the DeGrouchy home. Nothing was found to have been hidden in the roof cavity or thrown down any wall space. A search of the area to the rear of the house also produced nothing of relevance. However, during a search conducted on the 22nd of June 1996, a single sheet of Noah's on the beach notepaper, similar to that recovered from the dam, was found in Matthew's bedroom. Items in his handwriting were compared with the note by a document examiner who provided an expert opinion that they were produced by the same hand. The tire lever and jack were found to be missing from the family Toyota Seeker. That's the one he was driving. Wayne DeGrouchy said that so far as he was aware, the tyre lever and jack handle that were a standard issue for a Toyota Corolla Seeker of the kind, which he'd purchased in mid-1995, had never been used. So where'd they go? Fuck. Matthew would be arrested and charged with three counts of murder, on the 22nd of June 1996, 
three months after the murders took place. Now, a weird thing did happen on the 19th of March, 1996. Now, that was about a week after the murders. A man named Wackham committed suicide and left a note saying he was afraid he would be blamed for the de Grouchy murders. Now, police discounted this line of inquiry at having been shown that this man had been depressed and had contemplated suicide from an earlier time. Now, there's this other interesting thing about the trial, which started in 1998, so it's a couple of years after the events. Matthew's defence team tried to use the fact that there'd been two recent horrific murders and that the suspect in those events may have also perpetrated the de Grouchy family murders. Now, these events, I'll just read from Wiki a brief outline of these two murders as it really needs, they fucking need an episode in itself. 19-year-old Mark Valera, or Mark Van Crevel, as he was known at the time, was convicted in 2000 of the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell in Wollongong, New South Wales. David O'Hearn was murdered in his Albion Park home on the 12th of June 1998. His head was smashed in with a wine decanter. He was then decapitated, with his head later found in the kitchen sink. His hand was cut off and he'd been partially disemboweled. Valera had used O'Hearn's hand to draw several satanic pictures on the living room walls. Frank Arkell, a former Wollongong mayor and former member of the New South Wales State Parliament, was murdered in his Wollongong home on the 26th of June 1998. His head had been smashed in with a bedside lamp, with the electric cord wrapped tightly around his neck. Tie pins were stuck in Arkell's eyes and cheeks. Arkell had been mentioned in the Wood Royal Commission report. He had been embroiled in child pornography and pedophilia scandals in the years leading up to his death, and he had been acquitted of child sex offences six months before his murder. But investigations were continuing with further charges to be laid. Now, the judge in Matthew de Grouchy's trial refused this to be brought up as the Van Crevel murders were two years after the de Grouchy murders and had no real similarities in what, the way the victims were murdered, but it was interesting to say the least. Now, when we get into this trial, I'm going to go through quite a few of these points. It's going to take a little while these were the main points of evidence. Now, all items taken from the home were not items of value other than a video recorder. In particular, a jewel box of Mrs. De Grouchy and a wallet of Matthews were not taken, suggesting it was put that an attempt was made to fake a robbery, particularly as the items that were stolen were dumped in the dam. The offender removed some carpet from the main bedroom floor now, that's behaviour consistent with an attempt to remove or conceal some piece of physical evidence that might link him to the crime. Portions of the carpet and some items taken from the home were dumped in the dam near Winona, a place that was known to Matthew and that was on the route he took from his home to that of his girlfriend on the night of the killings. A tuft of carpet that matched the carpet removed from the bedroom was found in the Toyota of Mrs. De Grouchy containing material, the DNA of which was consistent with that of Matthew and inconsistent 
with any other member of his family. The items found in the dam included the very curious note in the handwriting of Matthew that contained some items consistent, it was put, with a plan to kill the three deceased who were the only persons named in it, to carry out a number of activities after the killing to remove possibly incriminating evidence from the scene and from his person and to inflict injuries upon himself so as to create the impression that he'd been set upon by robbers. The explanation offered by Matthew for the note, which had been torn up, it was argued, made no sense whatever in so far as it was suggested to be a list of birthday presents or of activities occurred on his birthday. That's what he was trying to say this note meant. He couldn't say it wasn't his. He admitted it was, but he was trying to say all these things on here were for his for a birthday party. Uh, headbutt the bench? Yeah. The vehicle was in Matthew's possession on the 12th and the 13th. That's the one with tufts of carpet in it. The body of Adrian was splashed with petrol, the obvious source of which was an open jerry can which was adjacent to his body. That had Matthew's fingerprints on it. The knob to the cupboard below the vanity unit in the main bathroom bore a left palm print of Matthew that was located within a smear that may have been blood. Bloodstains consistent with having come from Matthew, but not from other members of the family, were found on the hallway tiles and on the wall above and behind the bed of Mrs. DeGrouchy. Now, Matthew's assertion that there'd been prank phone calls to his mother and his suggestion that one such call, the caller had said, three of your family will be deceased, bore, as it was argued, the hallmarks of an invention by him to divert attention to a non-existent marauder. Particularly as Matthew had made no mention of such a chilling and accurate prophecy when he was interviewed by police on the 13th or 17th of March, and also because it was curious that such a threat should have been confined to three members of the family of five. Moreover, the Crown queried why in the face of such a threat and the number of anonymous calls that Matthew said were made, he would have left the house, particularly if he had suggested his mother was concerned about them. Now, when Matthew first spoke to Stephen Bailey across the road, Allegedly, immediately after discovering his mother, he said that there was something wrong with mum and Sarah. Yet on the account he gave to police, he could not have known that there was anything wrong with Sarah since he'd not been to her room and had assumed when he'd first gone into the house that she'd already left for school. So, when you're going to start doing this sort of stuff, you really have to plan what you're going to say and to who very well. Yes, He'd only said he'd been in his his mum's room and at that time Sarah should have been at school. Anyway, Matthew arrived much later than expected at his girlfriend's home the night before the murders or, well, on the night of the murders and it was submitted, had ample opportunity in the time available between 8pm and 11pm to carry out the killings, to collect various items at the scene, to drive it to the dam and dispose of them and then drive on to his girlfriend's house, a total trip occupying in the order of 28 minutes. 
In Matthew's defence, it was argued that if the killer had been in the house to steal, then he may have decided not to take items of the kind mentioned, either because he did not notice them, or because he was distracted, or because he chose not to take items that could be readily identified. So that's the jewellery box and Matthew's wallet. There was no evidence of Matthew having sustained any injury on the night of the killing that might have been expected in the course of such a violent series of events, or that it could have explained the presence of his blood on the tuft of carpet or on the hallway or wall, or that could have occasioned him sufficient concern to remove the piece of carpet from the main bedroom. There was no evidence of his shoes or clothing being bloodstained, and presumptive tests for blood on the steering wheel of the Toyota were negative. The jack handle and wheel brace from the Toyota were never found or linked positively with the killings, any number of similar implements being capable capable of causing the injuries, including the wheel brace, found by a neighbour sometime later. And that wasn't subjected to comparison by Dr. Carla, who did the autopsy. Even if the tools from the Toyota had been used as murder weapons, they could have been removed from the vehicle by someone else. Offcuts of the carpet were kept in the garage and were used from time to time to carry things in the Toyota to save it from getting dirty. In fact, a piece of such carpet had been used the weekend before the killings. There was no way of determining the age of the blood, if that's what it was, on the tuft of the carpet found in the Toyota. Now, many other people were familiar with the dam, and there was nothing particular to associate Matthew with it. There was also nothing surprising in finding Matthew's fingerprint on the jerry can, since on his account, and as confirmed by his father, both of them used it from time to time to fill the cars. Similarly, there was nothing surprising in finding his fingerprints on the surface of a vanity unit in the bathroom of a house where he lived. Now, there was adequate explanation for a robber disposing of the items taken from the house insofar as it would have been sensible for him to get rid of any items that might provide a link to the killings. But what I say is, Why'd you take them if you're going to dump them in the dam anyway? Why would you just not take them? Anyway, the note found at the dam contained a number of events that did not occur. No bottle or hi-fi was thrown down the back. Nothing was found in the wall cavity. Matthew had no sign of injury suggestive of him having uh, hit or cut himself. And there seemed to be little point in opening the blinds to see through. Well... That doesn't really matter, does it? It might not do everything on his list, on his plan. There was no sensible reason for leaving the list in a torn-up state together with the other items connected with the murder, rather than destroying it in a more effective way. But then again, people make mistakes. People fuck up. I mean, it mightn't have ever thought anything in the dam would survive, especially being paper. Now, the conversation with uh, Stephen Bailey across the road, it was suggested was explicable by the distraught state in which Matthew was and by the possibility that he may not have been sure whose body he'd seen. That's in regard to, did he see mum or Sarah? Matthew had no motive to kill a mother, who whom, on the evidence, he was attached, or his brother and sister. Now, there was hair found in the hands of Adrian de Grouchy, or one of his hands, which wasn't his or Matthew's but it may have already been there an earlier date and just happened to get stuck on his hand rather than be the hair pulled from the killer. 
This, uh, well, for Matthew's defense, they said this opened up a possibility that someone other than Matthew was the killer. His defense argued that when he was with his girlfriend and her mother the night before, he was just acting normal with no signs that he was anxious or whatever. And only after discovering his mother dead did he act in an upset way. Well, you know, there's plenty of good actors out there. Matthew was shown to be a person of good character without any prior conviction who enjoyed a reputation as a young man of gentle disposition. Also, there were no admissions made by him when interviewed by police and nothing was discovered of an incriminating nature while he was subject to electronic surveillance, which really doesn't mean much if he keeps his mouth shut. Now, these are significant arguments for the jury to consider in determining whether the only rational inference open was that Matthew killed the three deceased. Now, the fact that a jury properly instructed came to that conclusion after having heard and seen Matthew and the other witnesses, after having reviewed the physical exhibits and after having heard detailed closing addresses, as well as a careful and comprehensive summing up from a very experienced trial judge, well, he was to be found guilty and he would fail on each of his appeals. So, Basically, when all the factors identified by the Crown are taken into consideration in combination, the judge in the appeal was not persuaded that the case is one in which the jury ought to have entertained a reasonable doubt. In particular, the combination of the note, the presence of Matthew's fingerprint on the cabinet doorknob, the DNA recovered from the carpet tuft, and the spots of blood in the hallway and bedroom. The comment to Mr. Bailey, that Stephen Bailey, his next-door neighbour, about Sarah, Matthew's unconvincing evidence concerning the note, the absence of any mention to police of the prophecy as to the death of the three members of his family, the appearance of a staged robbery, and the finding of the items in the dam with which he was familiar, constituted a powerful circumstantial case. It may also be assumed from the verdict that having seen and heard Matthew give evidence, the jury were not impressed with his his credibility. So, in those circumstances, the judge was the view of the view that the appeals against conviction should be dismissed and the applications for leave to appeal against the sentence was refused. So, because of his youth, Matthew de Grouchy was given 28 years sentence with 21 years non-parole. So now we come to the time that Matthew de Grouchy is up for parole and it has in fact been granted. He's been doing day release, working at an abattoir of all places, but the boss there says he works in the cool room and he's not around nice. So that probably gives some assurance to his co-workers. Although he's had the support of his father throughout this saga, and why, I have no fucking idea... His father lives in Tasmania and was willing to take him in. But the Tasmanian says they don't want him in their state. Piss off. He has limited family support in New South Wales, mainly ageing grandparents who are not able to take him in. Now, he's been inside since 1998. Now, that was a long, long time ago. For those that remember, we had Bill Clinton denying he had sexual relations with former White House intern Monica Lewinsky, and that started the Lewinsky scandal and investigation. I, 
I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Oh, sorry. That's my best. Bill Clinton. And uh, what a fucking liar he was. We also had the Belfast Agreement, which uh, signed between the Irish and British governments. And uh, that basically stopped all the terrorist activity in Northern Ireland and mainland Britain. Now, I remember when I I was backpacking in 94 and we used to get off the bloody tube a lot of the time because of bomb threats. And we actually had one bomb go off while I was there. That was when the Irish were supposed to be terrorists. That seems like such a long time ago. The the Europeans agreed on a single currency, the euro. And before the euro, you know, we used to have the German mark, Italian lira and all that sort of stuff. The search engine Google was only just founded. Now, my God. <laughs> We've also got the Nokia 5110 phone. That was released. How many people had one of those? And who would have thought such a huge company would fall from such a height? So... De Grouchy coming into this new world, he's going to be so far out of place. For me, the fact that he's about the same age as his mother when he brutally murdered her makes me think our justice system really needs to have a good look at itself. He was able to serve three sentences concurrently, not consecutively. When you wipe out three of your family members for no apparent reason, I think you fucking well forfeit the right to even be able to walk free ever again. Now, at the parole hearing, Peter Rolfe, he's a support person for DeGrouchy's uncle, Ray Hallowell. He murdered Ray's sister, his nephew and his niece. And that's three murders. Ray feels like he should be on three life sentences. He feels DeGrouchy gets a determined sentence the family gets a life sentence. Well, yeah, pretty much so. Matthew's out to live his life while his mother, brother and sister were murdered all that time ago and lost their opportunity to live their lives to the fullest. So what do you think, Islanders? First up, guilty or not guilty on this strong circumstantial case that a jury found him guilty for and subsequent appeals found that there was no reason why they shouldn't and if guilty should he be allowed freedom after such horrific murders you tell me now before we get into the shout outs i thought it would be a good thing to start to upload some of the episodes to youtube for a greater audience reach at this initial stage there won't be any fancy videos or the camera on me as such It will be strictly for those that listen to True Crime via YouTube. So look out for that and let me know if anyone else is pirating the show as that has happened in the past. So that might start this week and I might add some of the better episodes that have gone beforehand. So now to the Patreon shout-outs. A big shout-out to Victor Martinez. Boom, fuck alunga, mate. Sophia, thank you so much for all your support and the special pledge this month. Jason, the 4X Abercrombie, thanks, mate, for all your continued support over the years. And thank you all so much for your support, and thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. True Crime Island is totally listener-supported. Uh, keep it keep it ad-free, as you know. I don't like ads, neither do you. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and check out the levels and rewards. 
emails will go out this week for awards for this last month so please reply if you do get one so you too can do one-off donations at paypal.me forward slash true crime island as Ilya did last week and I typed her name wrong and said Alia last week so sorry Ilya and also thanks so much to Louise Anderton a- Anderton for your p- I'm, I'm going to get this wrong I'm sure I've spelled your name wrong thanks so much to Louise for your PayPal donation as well also you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels tote bags, all that stuff the mugs of rage are there as well all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com remember listeners don't buy black mugs I do have keychains, lapel pins and stickers you have to contact me directly for them, that can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com it's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say boom fagalanga, now you don't have to spend money to support the island you can also rate and review and tell your friends family and workmates about the island and if they don't know how to tune into podcasts or whatever, please show them. There's so many podcasts out there. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join the closed group on Facebook. Shout out to Curtis at Melbourne, Boomfuckalunga, mate. So that's about it for tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James, and I'd, I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfuckalunga. Oh, I think my voice just made it again.